Recently, Jeff made a comment during worship, and I, I can't quote him, my memory's not great, but he said something along the lines of, he said, I, I'm not big about asking everybody to raise their hands, or I don't for, try to force people to worship in a certain style, but that morning he was encouraging us to really open up our heart and to hold nothing back, to reserve nothing. And I, I appreciated both of what he said, uh, both that he doesn't try to coerce people to worship in a certain style, and also that he would encourage you to worship with all your heart. From that context, uh, I want to come to you this morning and say that we have a massive worship deficit in the church of God. We have an incredible delinquency as the children of God in worshiping God. Don't get me wrong. We have incredible worship music today. There's probably never been a time where music was more worshipful, intensively prepared for worship. We have incredible worship conferences. Have any of you ever been to a conference uh, for worship? Some of you, I'm sure, have. I see hands. And we have incredible, I mean, thousands of people will gather and incredible conferences, incredible worshipful conferences, revivals, meetings, church services. But we are delinquent in worship this morning. God's own children, the one who are redeemed, are holding back their worship. Worship has almost become a buzzword. It's become a thing that you fight about and fuss about because it's been pigeonholed to be what kind of music you play. That's absolutely in error. Worship will have nothing to do, it will have nearly nothing to do about this instrument or nearly nothing to do about this stage, but it will have everything to do about his heart and her heart and your heart and my heart. When you read the word of God, you get to the final pages, and do you know what, what nearly the last command of God is? Revelation 22, it could not be more clear. Revelation 22 verse 9 says, are you ready? Worship God. You don't need theology degrees. You don't need a bunch of learning. You, you don't need to get some dictionaries out. It doesn't matter what version of the Bible you read. You can't screw that one up. Worship God. I want us to turn our attention to the scripture this morning. And I have been so blessed by this service. I will do my best to keep it moving. I know it has been a beautiful service. I don't want to keep you here all day. Does anybody recall what happened in John chapter 11? Do you have any Bible scholars out here, any people out here who you know, that you, maybe you love the book of John? Turn there if you want. Find, find this beautiful story, one of a famous story from the book of John. Anyone know it? What's something very famous from John 11? I heard a name. Say it again. Lazarus. What do you know about Lazarus? Some of us say, I was once lost, but now I'm found. Once blind, but now I see. Lazarus could say, truly, once I was dead. Amen. But when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, there's not a single thing in this world that can hold him back. And Lazarus came out of the grave. And so let us turn to John chapter 12. And we'll begin reading together. If you'd stand, if you're able, we'll begin reading together John chapter number 12. 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. You know, if you raise the family member from the dead, you ought to get a dinner. Amen. I mean, that's the least we could do. Jesus is coming back to town. I think we should at least do a dinner for him. And I love this passage. Martha served. Isn't that just like her, right? Martha served. And do you hear this phrase? Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Couldn't you imagine if you had been one of those uh, family members and you had traveled a, a great distance to get there for the funeral and then you, you, didn't, you weren't able really to stay very long and so they had the funeral and they went ahead and tucked away Lazarus in the grave and then you hear there's going to be this special thing, Jesus is coming to town and so here you come traveling back a while later and all you know is Lazarus was put into the, the, the cave of the tomb and you come back for the special feast and you walk in and you're like, hi Martha, hi Mary, hey Lazarus. We put that joker in the tomb. What is he? I've got problems today. I'm seeing Lazarus here at the table. What a blessing. And as they were here eating, check this out church, verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor. You know, sometimes what people say is not really according to the motive of their heart. He said it because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. God, I pray you would take my lips, my words, my tongue, all this that can be so confusing, discombobulated, and just stand in the way. And I pray you'd anoint it for your work. Let your Holy Spirit do the work today. If you do the work, the work will get done. And I praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The other two times that this story is told in Matthew and Mark, it's reported that Mary was storing her oil in an alabaster box. That, alo that word alabaster, there's alabastron, and it could have been a box, a jar. Not exactly sure. We've had songs sung about it, plenty of messages preached about it, that famous alabaster box. Alabaster is a fairly soft rock. It's somewhat like marble, though marble's twice as hard as it. Alabaster is usually found as a dull color. Uh, we've got a picture, I believe, that we can show you. This, if we can get it up here, this is an example of an alabaster jar that is in Houston at a Houston Baptist um, museum, Houston Baptist University. This is an alabaster jar that they think is from around 3000 BC. Uh, we have, there's a second one here too that was auctioned. We'll see if, if they can find it. I'm shooting fast at them. We don't have the second one. The second one, uh, very similar to this one, was actually auctioned on Sotheby's. Some of you know what Sotheby's 
however you say it, the auction house is, and it went for $12,000. I thought that was pretty interesting as I was looking for these alabasters. This, these, this color that we have here is more of a usual color. It's probably why they were able to find it so many thousands of years later. There was additional colors of alabaster that were rare, like a bluish green color. And they would take this, this uh, almost a marbly texture, but they'd be able to carve it out and they created beautiful pieces with it. You could spend a great different amount of money on these alabaster boxes, right? Like if you got this color that was more common and normal, it would still be expensive, but it was doable, right? And you'd have to be pretty wealthy to be able to secure one that was that bluish green. Now you're talking about somebody who had money. And so the alabaster box, they were not all the same. Author Jackie Kendall informs us about alabaster, and I'm going to quote her. In the days of Jesus, when a young woman reached the age of availability for marriage, her family would purchase an alabaster box for her, and they'd fill the alabaster box with precious ointment. The size of the box and the value of the ointment would parallel her family's wealth. This alabaster box would become part of her dowry. When the young man came to ask for her in marriage, she would respond by taking her alabaster box, breaking it at his feet. The gesture of anointing his feet showed him honor and blessed their covenant. It's so interesting that Mark says Mary broke the alabaster box. What did it, why, why was it that she broke it? She did not intend to only borrow its purpose for that moment. She intended to expend it, to use it all on Jesus. She wasn't offering just a piece of what was important to her She broke the box. It was no longer valuable after this moment. And she put every little bit of the value it had to her at the feet of Jesus. Inside her alabaster box was pure nard, sometimes called spike nard. It's an essential oil taken from Nepal, India, and China, and it was very expensive for them to import it to the Middle East. They would fill these jars with this oil and the jar and the oil would be more like an art piece you just put it on your wall like some fancy painting and when people would come in it was kind of like oh wow you have this it was way way less about using it and more about having it such a nice valuable thing Judah says in this passage that we could have taken this oil and sold it for 300 denarii. Now, a denarii, one of them, was about a day's wage for a laborer. So you can do the math. 300 would be nearly a year of working. So I think fairly conservatively, you can say there was $30,000. I don't know how much you get paid in a year, but pretty conservatively, we'll say about $30,000 of oil. That's how precious this was, imported from the Far East. And Judah sat there and said, whoa, wait a a second. That was $30,000 that you just poured out. Pretty cool that it says the fragrance filled the room. Ladies, if you spend $30,000 on perfume, it needs to stink up the place, amen? So I give you this background because I want to ask you a question, right? Why'd she do this? 
Why, why did she do this? this? That's the question I want to ask. So simple today. I don't have some fancy outline for you. I don't, have, I don't have a bunch of great, cool things that you might remember as far as alliteration. I don't. But I ask the question, why, why did she do this? And Judas is kind of right. Was this not wasteful? Can I tell you, however that you pour out your worship to Jesus Christ will never be wasteful. This world may notice what you're doing and say, what are you thinking? But it will never be wasteful. Then why does she do it? Okay, two simple reasons. Number one, why did Mary do this? Number one, she knew what Jesus had done. This was her brother who was sitting at the table. Are you all with me this morning? This was the guy that had been dead, and now he's sitting at the table. Jesus, just in the chapter before, had said, Lazarus, come forth. And out of the tomb came Jesus, came Lazarus. I want to give you such an easy definition. If you're taking notes, write it down. It's my definition. I didn't come up with it. It's been around. But it's so simple to remember. Let's define worship. Write this down. Worth it. Worship, worth it. Worship, worth it. Will you say that with me? Worship, worth it. One more time. Worship, worth it. The heart who worships, that heart is the one that's saying he's worth it. She did this because Jesus was worth it. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how poor you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care if you are from the right side of the railroad. It does not matter. When death comes knocking on your door, you're in the same boat as the next man. And no amount of money that you have, no clout that you have, no political favors that you've earned, there's nothing you can do. And some of you experienced that this year. Some of you experienced that in your home. When death comes comes a knocking, there is not a single dollar that can save you from that time. And Mary knew what Jesus had done. How dare I hold back any part of my worship for the one who's responsible for my brother who was dead sitting here at this table. He wasn't just sick. He was dead. They had buried him. But you know what? There was someone who didn't like it. Judas said, hey, this, this, whoa, 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 this precious jar and this precious ointment could have been $30,000 for the poor. Judas said this because his hands and feet and eyes and ears had come into contact with Jesus, but his heart had not. Matthew Henry said it like this, Judas was one of the number of Jesus' disciples, but he was not one of the nature of Jesus' disciples. We have so many people today who know the story and they've been in church and they might even attach Christian to their name. Yeah, it might even be some of us sitting in these pews today. You are one of the number, but you're not one of the nature. And why it's so easy for you to criticize what everyone else does and why it's so easy for you to not have any joy and to be so critical is because you've been around Jesus, but you're not in Jesus today. He has not embraced you into his family. And so as we talk about worship today and you say, I don't really get it. I don't really know what it means to pour out my worship. It might mean that you're the Judas at the table who's enjoyed the, the impressive power of Jesus and you've enjoyed the fellowship of Jesus, but you've not had faith in Jesus. You need to ask yourself that question. 
People are going to criticize how you pour out your worship. They're going to criticize it. Why is that person with so much potential? And why is that person with such so many uh, giftedness? Why are they taking time out? What are they doing in Peru? Do they not know there's diseases in Peru? Do they not know that planes crash? Do they not know that there's like riots in Haiti? Isn't that close to Peru, I think? People are not going to like the way you pour out your worship. Why does that woman read her Bible in the break room? That's a little haughty and standoffish. Like, I mean, I'm a Christian, but I ain't doing that. They're not going to like the way that you live out your worship to Jesus Christ because he's worth it. He's worth the weird glances. He's worth the other people in my class thinking I'm kind of odd. He's worth the men at my job thinking I'm a weirdo because I will not look at the images they show me. He's worth the neighbors thinking I'm a weirdo because I won't watch that most popular show because it speaks out against what I stand for. And the whole world, as we pour out our worship before him, will have something to say about it. And sometimes those people will be sitting next to you at the table. They will have something that they don't like about the way you pour out your worship. I read an article lately about how much fast food restaurants make. It was from 2016 when the article was from. And it was this kind of stuff so interesting to me because I'm a numbers guy. I'm a math teacher and I, I, I love money. Pray for me. But I just, these kind of things are cool. And so I was reading this story and it said KFC per store. Each little KFC spot is making $1.1 million. They're bringing in $1.1 million per year. Burger King, each time you pass a Burger King, on average, of course they're different, but on average, that Burger King's making $1.3 million a year. Wendy's, $1.5. Bojangles, I was impressed. Bojangles, $1.8. Zaxby's, $2.3 million their average store brings in. And I saw a bunch of people say, ah, yeah, they got about hundred grand for me, brother. McDonald's, the iconic brand, $2.5 million per year. And number one, Chick-fil-A. McDonald's, $2.5 million per store in a year. Chick-fil-A, $4.5 million per store. And one-seventh of the time, while McDonald's is making money and Zaxby's is making money and Burger King and Wendy's is making money, what am I about to tell you? They are closed. And it doesn't mean that they're necessarily more spiritual. I, I'm not, some of you might have a restaurant and people debate that kind of stuff sometimes. And I'm not mad at you if you're open on Sunday. It's not the point of the lesson today. But I'm going to tell you what the point is. On their walls, publicly, they would tell you. I'd walk in as a little kid. It'd be on their wall in some paragraph. Or it might even be at the door on some little bulletin. It would say, we're closed on Sunday. Why? So that our people can have an opportunity to worship. And if you do the numbers considering the weekend, they're giving away about a million dollars per store. But don't tell me they're giving away a million dollars. Because God said, I'll do Monday through Saturday double what McDonald's can do Monday through Sunday. Worship was a priority for them. You know what Truett Cathy said? Maybe we are giving away money on these Sundays, but he's worth it. He is worth it to me. 
He is worth it. And he ought to be worth it to my employees. She knew what Jesus had done. And if you know what Jesus has done, how many of you here could raise your hand and say, Jesus has done some seriously amazing stuff in my life. Do it. Who could raise your hand and say, he's done it in my life. I'm not just here as a passerby, but he's done it in my life. Well, if you know what Jesus has done, you'll pour out your worship. Number two, why'd she do it? She knew what Jesus had done. Number two, she believed in what Jesus was going to do. She believed in what Jesus was going to do. Verse 7 said, she had kept it for Jesus' burial. Surely if this man has called Lazarus out of the tomb, then he'll never have to die. Right? Like if you can call this dead dude out of the grave, then this is a man who has power over death. I guess he'll never have to die. But she had kept it for Jesus' burial. She had the understanding, whether she knew it within herself or whether it's just the Holy Spirit's work, I don't know. But she had the understanding in some sense that this was for Jesus' burial. Here this woman, of, she must have been of some means to have $30,000 worth of this oil within her alabaster box. Jesus about to shed his blood. And so he says in verse 8, you always have the poor with you, Judas. You'll always have other things you could have done. But you won't always have me forever. Mary cracked open this beautiful, expensive alabaster jar. I just imagine it being that marbly blue color like the ocean. Her family had bought it for her as a little girl. They put, it, they put so much value into it for her dowry or as an heirloom passed down from a previous generation. I don't know, but I just imagine she's pouring out this thirty, forty something thousand dollars worth of oil on Jesus. The one who had created the world deserved the greatest praise. Because not only had he created the world, and not only had he raised her brother from the dead, but he was about to go take her sins to the cross and be the Savior of the world. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 7? I want to begin preaching a separate message. You're welcome. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading quickly here for the sake of time. We have about 15 verses to read. Luke 7 The 36th verse. These stories are so similar that many people have mistaken them to be the same story. but They are absolutely not. I'm 100% confident and through a good bit of study and agreement with many people smarter than I am, this is absolutely not the same story. If you want to know more about that, you can ask me later. I'll give you a few pointers for why it's a different story now. One of the most specific ones here is, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Many Bible scholars believe this woman was a prostitute. And there's reasons within this text to think that's a 
pretty good guess. She was touch- the Pharisee was shocked that she was touching him. He used the term sort, what sort of woman she was. She was known as a sinner. One commentator said this term for sinner here usually means sinner by trade. Shocked. Why would Jesus let this woman, maybe a prostitute, in here? What, what is he thinking? Jesus said, Simon, I got something to say to you. He says, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, listen, church, verse 44, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she has loved much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The Pharisees were the spiritual giants of the Jews. They knew more Bible verses. They had more understanding of doctrine. They tithed more money. All the pastors said, amen. What? Okay. They did everything so perfectly. But you know what they didn't have? They didn't have the understanding that this was Jesus, the Son of God. When Mark and Matthew tell the other story, they're in a house and there's somebody who doesn't like it. And in the other stories, what they said was this was valuable. It could have been sold for all this money. That wasn't mentioned in this story. I'm not certain, it doesn't say specifically, but I believe that Mary must have come into that room, that, into, into her house where Jesus was, and Mary must have taken this marbly blue, beautiful alabaster box filled with this precious spikenard, and, and it was worth so much money. And I believe Mary must have, from a place of wealth, poured out this valuable worship to Jesus. And though it doesn't say it so specifically, I think I'm not stretching the details. I think you study it yourself, you'll see it as I do. The woman here is not, they don't get mad at her because of how much it's worth. It says that in three, the other three, Matthew, Mark, and John talking about Mary, they're mad about how much it's worth. In Luke, this different story, they're only mad about how bad she is. They don't care anything about how much it's worth. I think that's probably because this lady's alabaster box just wasn't that fancy. Are you tracking with me? Are you with me today? And then in the other text, it talks about the oil being nard or spikenard. And it doesn't say anything about it being nard or spikenard in this text. It just calls it ointment. And I I bet that's on purpose because I'm betting she couldn't afford that type of oil. And I cannot tell you, I'm getting outside the text for a moment, but I got to tell you because it's all over my heart and I got to tell you what I got on it. 
I cannot help but to imagine this lady, maybe even a prostitute, had tucked away her old alabaster jar from a family that didn't even have much money, but it was supposed to be her dowry for her husband. But her life had got off the tracks. Her life had got messed up, and she probably even had to hide that thing not to be shameful when these men would come into her home. But yet when she heard what Jesus has done, because I, I started asking myself, why would she do this? And this is what I came up with. She probably came in here and risked everything to roll up in this religious man's house as a prostitute to go lay at the feet of Jesus. I bet she risked everything because she knew what Jesus had done, number one. I bet she had heard that there was a lady with five husbands and living with a sixth guy. And I bet when she heard that Jesus went to that lady and said, Honey, I still love you. Honey, I still died for you. I'm still the Savior of the world. And when Jesus had met that woman at the well, I have a feeling that story got out. And other ladies who were living lives that weren't so great got to find out that Jesus loves me just as much as he loves the religious people down at the church. I bet she was willing to come in because she knew what Jesus had done. I bet she heard there was a woman caught in adultery who got slammed down into the dirt and all the religious men got all their boulders out to come and kill her. But she heard that Jesus crawled up in the muck and the mire with that woman down in the dirt and he said, you that are without sin cast the first stone. And they had to walk away because they too were sinful. It just wasn't so public as that adulterous woman. And I bet this woman walked into that house that day, had dusted off her old alabaster box that was supposed to be her dowry, and she said, if I'm ever going to meet a man who's worthy, it's this one. And I bet she walked into that house that day because she knew what Jesus had done. And so she took her alabaster jar. And it might not have been as fancy as Mary, and I'm betting it wasn't as valuable as Mary's, but she broke it and she poured it out on Jesus. She did it because she knew what Jesus had done. But number two, you want to take a guess? She did it because she believed in what Jesus, are you with me? What she believed? Did you write anything down? It might be on the screen behind me. Are you with me? She knew what Jesus had done, but she believed in what? And what Jesus was going to do. She believed in it. If he can save that woman with five husbands, if he can save the woman supposed to be killed who was caught in adultery, then I know he can save me. And so she poured out her oil. We're all so different. Some of you in here today, you are educated and fancy. You got the nice car and your social class is pretty legit. I'd like to be you sometimes. Amen. With your season tickets to the coolest sporting events and the boat and the hunting club. And some of you are just, you're in my eyes, you got it all. I'm pretty simple, though, so maybe you don't. But I was just, you got it all. And, and then some of you are here today, and you're, you're just, you're, no, that's not true. You, you don't have much money. You're fighting from behind, the, from behind a bunch of odds stacked against you, and we're all different. Some haters are telling you not to serve Jesus because you're too valuable to serve Jesus. 
Don't pour out your worship daily before Jesus because that's below you. That's what the dumb people do who don't know better. And you got the weight of that social idea on you that to pour out your worship, you just look stupid. And then some of you are on a completely different aspect and, and you're, you're being told by the world that if you're pouring out your worship to Jesus, that's dumb because you're just not valuable enough. You think, you think you have anything really of value to offer? Well, I want to come to you this morning and I want to say it as boldly and as clearly as I can. Pour it out. Pour it out. Whether you are a nurse or a doctor or in the medical field, let every single patient you see, let every x-ray you read be the worship of your heart. I'm going to pour out every piece of me in worship for the King of Kings. I don't have Jesus physically here, but in every moment of my life, I'm going to pour out my worship to Him. You might be a teacher. You might be somebody working with young people, coaching or teaching, or in what other other fields there are. And each moment you walk into that room, each time you're in counseling with that person, no matter where you're on a field or a court or wherever you are, you ought to take every bit of worship that's been bottled up inside of you and pour it out before Jesus. They ought to think you're a weirdo and a wacko. We've been far too worried about whether you raise hands in this room instead of being worried about how we raise our heart outside these doors and pour it out if you're a garbage man be going down the road smelling like poop and singing at the top of your lungs because I will pour out my worship to Jesus if you're a firefighter and they're all they're all holed up in there watching things they ought not watch and telling jokes they ought not tell be the weirdo who walks around in joy saying Jesus is my king I love you guys I'm here for you guys I don't know what you are. I don't have time to pull out every profession I can think of. But you get the point. God's people have been delinquent on pouring out their worship. We've been only worried if we're doing it right in these pews and we have held back our worship. Those ladies came into that room and they said, He's worth it. Whether the world thinks my, my little ointment to pour out is worth 50 grand or whether they think it's worth $5. I'm taking every bit of the value system I have and I'm pouring it out before Him. And what is it in your life that's valuable? What is it? What is it? Is it your career? Is it your giftedness? Is it your marriage? Is it your children? What is it that you've been holding back that's become an artifact, valuable but useless? You need to pour it out. You need to pour it out. Would you stand with me? Just bow your head for a moment. Just bow your head for a moment. I have no request for you to respond with raising your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do that sort of thing today. But I'm asking you to answer in your heart. Are you holding back? When we're in this room and we're doing this corporate worship, I'm an emotion. I'm not going to lie. You might can already know this. I'm an emotional person. I'm an expressive person. And I like to raise my hand. I like to sing at the top of my voice. God help the people that sit around me. But I... I'm just an, I'm an expressive worshiper in this room. 
But when I'm at the grocery store or the restaurant or the ball field or my school, I'm a little scaredy cat. Walking on eggshells about when I'm allowed to say Jesus' name. Walking on eggshells about if somebody won't like me after I go and tell them the gospel. Walking on eggshells about should I tell this server that Jesus loves them. I pause and I hesitate and the time of Jesus being there at the table would be gone if I had been Mary. I'd been back in the room nervous, wondering if this would be weird, wondering if they think I was wasteful. If I had been that prostitute lady, I'd have never walked through the door trying to decide if it was worth it. That's why the argument about how we look in church, whether our hands are up or not, that's why that argument's fruitless. Because my hands may be up here and my mouth closed there, while your hands may be down here and your heart reaching everyone there. So whether it's your hands up in this church or your heart reaching out out there, fooey on everybody that doesn't like it. Fooey on the Judases who think you could spend your worship in a better way. And fooey on all the religious crowd who thinks you're not good enough to worship. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so whatever it is, you have to answer that question. If you're holding back your worship in this service, you need to get it right. If in these services the Holy Spirit's been piling up inside of you and been telling you sing louder, sing like you mean it, then sing. Pour out your worship in these services. But what are you doing on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? What worship are you withholding from the King of Kings? Do the neighbors know where you stand? Do your co-workers know where you stand? We ought to have worship bubbling out of us. And so I say to you, my final entreaty, pour it out.